Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a new opportunity to support Her God Speaks. I recently created a space on Substack, which is sort of like a blog, where I can share all sorts of things from theology to my favorite target finds and everything in between. It's called Come On In, because I want that whole sitting at my kitchen table and chatting it up with some lattes in hand vibe. Now you can subscribe for free, but it would be so helpful if you upgraded to the $5 a month paid subscription that gets you access to some exclusive content. For example, I recently published a podcast episode just for paid subscribers about my reasons for transitioning to an Anglican church. I plan to do another episode soon on where I've been and where I'm at on the women in pastoral leadership question. Things I love talking about, but don't necessarily feel safe sharing with the whole world. That's the kind of stuff that paid subscribers are going to get. Now, I do not pay myself for the work I do here. I'm simply seeking to cover ministry costs, which, as the reach of this podcast grows, are growing right along with it. I can only keep doing this as long as the costs are covered. So give it some thought and click the link in the show notes if you are interested. If that link doesn't work, you can visit aprilsweers.substack, that's S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com, aprilsweers.substack.com. Thanks in advance for your support. Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. Welcome back, friends. Today, I want to start a series of episodes walking through the highlights of one of my favorite books on reading the Bible well. It's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes by Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien. I read this book for the first time a couple years ago now, and I found it to be an incredibly useful tool in helping me navigate the hardest part of Bible interpretation, which is learning to read myself as I read scripture. Now we've talked in previous episodes about how reading the Bible is always, without exception, a cross-cultural experience. One of our foundational principles is that scripture was written for us, but it was not originally written to us. In fact, it was written for people living in time periods and parts of the world that are vastly different from our own Western modern context. What that means for us is that in order to read the Bible well and uncover the meaning the author intended to convey, we have to work really hard to be good tourists of the text. We don't want to be the loudmouthed guy in a NASCAR t-shirt, dockers in bright white tube stocks, standing in line at the Eiffel Tower in Paris, complaining that he can't find a decent cheeseburger and declaring that if one more person tries to speak to him in French, he's going to lose his ever-loving mind. Now, I happen to know where you can get a great cheeseburger in Paris, but that's not the point. The point is, just like we would hopefully seek to honor the cultural context of a foreign place we're visiting, we ought to work really hard to honor the cultural context of the foreign land that we call the Bible. Now, here's what makes this so challenging. The most powerful cultural values are those that go without being 
said. There's so much a part of our thinking, so much a part of our world that we don't even talk about them. They're just assumed. Here's what Richard and O'Brien have to say about this. It is hard to know what goes without being said in another culture, but often we are not even aware of what goes without being said in our own culture. This is why misunderstanding and misinterpretation happens. When a passage of scripture appears to leave out a piece of the puzzle because something went without being said, we instinctively fill in the gap with a piece from our own culture, usually a piece that goes without being said for us. When we miss what went without being said for them and substitute what goes without being said for us, we are at risk of misreading scripture. Later, they write, what goes without being said for us can lead us to miss important details in a Bible passage. There's a great illustration of this in the introduction to the book that I want to share with you. I'm reading from pages 14 and 15 here. Mark Allen Powell offers an excellent example of this phenomenon in The Forgotten Famine, an exploration of the theme of personal responsibility in what we call the parable of the prodigal son. Powell had 12 students in a seminary class read the story carefully from Luke's gospel, close their Bibles, and then retell the story as faithfully as possible to a partner. None of the 12 American seminary students mentioned the famine in Luke 15, 14, which precipitates the son's eventual return. Powell found this omission interesting, so he organized a larger experiment in which he had 100 people read the story and retell it as accurately as possible to a partner. Only six of the 100 participants mentioned the famine. Now, the group was ethnically, racially, socioeconomically, and religiously diverse. The famine forgetters, as power calls them, had only one thing in common. They were all from the United States. Later, Powell had the opportunity to try the experiment again, this time outside the United States. In St. Petersburg, Russia, he gathered 50 participants to read and retell the prodigal son story. This time, an overwhelming 42 of the 50 participants mentioned the famine. Why? Well, just 70 years before, 670,000 people had died of starvation after a Nazi German siege of the capital city began a three-year famine. Famine was very much a part of the history and imagination of the Russian participants in Powell's exercise. Based solely on cultural location, people from America and Russia disagreed about what they considered the crucial details of the story. Americans tend to treat the famine as an unnecessary plot device. Sure, we think, the famine makes matters worse for the young son. He's already penniless, and now there's no food to buy, even if he did have money. But he has already committed his sin, so it goes without saying for us that the main issue in the story is his wastefulness, not the famine. This is evident from our traditional title for the story, the parable of the prodigal or wasteful son. We apply the story then as a lesson about willful rebellion and repentance. The boy is guilty morally of disrespecting his father and squandering his inheritance. He must now ask for forgiveness. But Christians in other parts of the world understand the story very differently. In cultures more familiar with famine, like Russia, readers consider the boy's spending less important than the famine. 
the application of the story for them has less to do with the willful rebellion and more to do with God's faithfulness to deliver his people from hopeless situations. The boy's problem is not that he is wasteful, but that he is lost. Our goal in this book is not, first and foremost, to argue which interpretation of a biblical story like this one is correct. Our goal is to raise this question. If our cultural context and assumptions can cause us to overlook a famine, what else do we fail to notice? That's a provocative question, isn't it? It's unsettling to think that our cultural lens could be blinding us to important things in Scripture. Here's the good news. If we put in the work, we can significantly reduce the risk of this happening. The work I speak of is the work of learning to read ourselves as we read the Bible. Learning to look in the mirror and identify the assumptions and presuppositions we bring with us to our engagement with the Bible, especially those assumptions and presuppositions that are so deeply ingrained in our thinking that they go without being said. That's the main reason Richards and O'Brien wrote this excellent book, and I'm really looking forward to sharing some of the highlights with you over the next seven weeks. Bye, friends. Bye, friends.